The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Good evening, everybody. My name is Shelley Graff, and I'm the associate director here. Um, I usually lead the Wednesday night practice groups once a month or so and teach a little more frequently when Mark is away, leading retreats like he is now. So it's good to be with you tonight. And I get to be with you next Sunday night also. Just fair warning. (laughs) Some of you know that I'm in uh, a teaching or a teacher training program through Insight Meditation Society. It's a four-year deal. Um, There are people, about 20 of us, most of us from the United States, but a couple of people from Canada and my sibling Nolita from South Africa also. And so I just returned from an, a week. We get together three times a year as a cohort to train together and learn from each other and from the core group of teachers, Joseph Goldstein, Rebecca Bradshaw, Kamala Masters, and others. So I just returned, and I had a different idea of where I'd start this talk tonight, but after spending such rich time with the the group, I feel really moved to begin in a different place and see where the night goes as an experiment. It's just such... Uh, I really, my heart feels so... Um, full of appreciation for this path that we're traveling together. And it doesn't matter if you've been on the path for five minutes, maybe this is your first time to Common Ground, or if you've been practicing meditation, mindfulness, the Dharma for 20 years. It's like we can enter into the practice wherever we're at, and it seems that You know, at different points in our lives, we can enter in at a different level, but we're still kind of reworking the same themes. The Dharma remains the same. It's such a a simple, such simple instructions, but really complicated because this experience of being human is so complex. So I just, like, I've been on the path now for a number of years and practicing in my way for as long as I've been practicing and at Common Ground that whole time. And it really just feels like at this point in my life, there's so much faith in the teachings. And at a time when we as human beings really need to have faith in something, You've probably seen this in your life as often as I've seen it in mine, just this kind of desire to have take refuge in something, like, ah, oh, I just need something to help me get through. Right? And often we're taking refuge in all the wrong things. <laughs> I mean, how many times do you go to your refrigerator when you're bored? Like, I need to take refuge in something tasty. <laughs> or look around for something to do. I need to organize something or clean something or when we don't really know what we're going to do with our lives or maybe there's something complicated that we're working in our hearts, some difficulty in a relationship. And it's not like any of those things that we use to or that we employ to soothe the heart or find some comfort from time to time. It's not like any of those things are wrong or bad or inappropriate. Like having a nice conversation with a loved one is a really nice thing to do. But there's a deeper truth that the Dharma points us to. That we can use, that we can access any time in our lives. And it feels like such a gift to me 
to be able to have that. To go like, oh, right, I don't have to be, I don't have to become this ball of anxiety because I can just see this as a force of nature, for example. That I don't have to be imprisoned by this body that is always changing, always aging, always falling apart. Like that's the truth of things. And I can actually have a different view to receive this experience of being embodied. Like this is what the Dharma points us to. Some refuge that's actually worthy. Some act, some refuge that actually stands the test of time that might guide us to a place that some pleasant experience in our life will never be able to deliver. There's this story in the teachings, the story of Bahia. I've talked about this story before, but I really love it. The theme of the retreat that I was just on with the rest of the trainees was emptiness and identity. So really going to the deepest teaching, in my view, like this understanding or this teaching on emptiness, and then also embracing the experience of our personal, individual, our lived identities, so many of them, right? And how they are working together. So this, we'll start with this teaching on emptiness just to point us in the direction of the teachings, the deepest teachings. So this story of this person who was... um, an aesthetic practicing at the time of the Buddha. He's sometimes referred to as Bahia of the Bark, I think, because he wore just like nothing except bark, um, like a pair of underwear, <laughs> but bark. <laughs> uh, I got it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so this idea at the time of uh, these aesthetic practices was that there's, you know, something about transcending the body, doing all these intense practices to bypass the body in a way, to like move away from or do something greater than what the body has to offer, right? So Bahia was doing these things and lots of people were coming to him and asking him, for advice, and so we got to thinking, well, maybe I'm a wise person. Like, maybe I really do have some some kind of wisdom here. And then it said that these heavenly beings visited Bahia this evening and said, well, you don't really have the goods, Bahia. <laughs> Sorry to tell you, but you don't really have the goods. But I know who does, and that's the Buddha. And if you travel to the Buddha, maybe he'll set you straight. I'm sure it didn't go down exactly like that. That's my language, but that's the gist, the gist of it, as I recall the story. And so Bahia was like set off to go see the Buddha. And what's so remarkable about this is like this is a, a dude who had a fair amount of wisdom, right? He could, something to offer other human beings. They were coming to him again and again and again. And yet... It didn't take much for Bahia to want to want more, right? To really want to go to the deepest place that he could go, to want the the teachings that will deliver him to uh, that will uh, set him on the path to real freedom. And so he traveled. He was willing to travel uh, quite a distance. It said that he, you know, traveled like. 10,000 feet in elevation, or took him a long time, over 15,000 miles, or just some extraordinary. You don't really know if those numbers are true, but you can get a sense that he traveled a, a long way. And just to reflect on the kind of intention in his heart that 
propelled each step, each movement along the way. So not only did he have this desire to be free, to really be free, even as a wise being, I want to be more free than this, but he was willing to step by step by step walk over terrain, uncharted, right, non-unpaved roads, not with the car, but on foot to find the Buddha. And when he gets to the Buddha, his resolve is strong. He gets to the monastery, the place where the Buddha was staying, and Buddha wasn't there. He was out on alms round, going to get some uh, food himself. And so he sets off and he finds the Buddha out there and asks the Buddha for the teachings, something like, please give me the teachings in brief. And the Buddha said, it's not the right time, Bahia. And as it goes in the scriptures, Bahia asked three times, and on the third time the Buddha delivered. And he had this very simple, this very simple teaching to offer him. He said, I don't have the sutta in front of me, but he said, like, the scene is just the scene, the herd is just the herd, the cognized is just the cognized. He went through the senses and then pointed to the mind. And he said, like, when you understand this, you know, there is, that there's no you to be found. That's real, that's when you'll know. Like, that's the, the path of freedom. That's it. Right? Give me the teachings in brief and in a, a minute. You know, just as long as it took me to give that summary of the teaching is as long as it took the Buddha, I'm sure, to deliver those teachings to him. So what is that? That, that is the, the simple teaching on emptiness, actually, that we live this life and we get so confused, right, in our humanness. Our human nature is to get kind of confused by what we see and what we hear and what we feel. And then we start to layer a story of I am. I am this. I am this body that's failing and it's my fault and now I have a problem, right? Or I am what, you know, I am or this is mine or this is me, this experience. And so we're constantly in this trap of trying to find something to resolve that problem. Resolve the problem of this predicament, this human predicament. And so it's not like any of that, it's not like this human experience is going to be easier for us on a daily basis, except if we know what, what there really is to take refuge in. It's, except if we can see that in some moments this possibility exists for us to understand, for us to touch these deep truths, that maybe this body Maybe there's a way of relating to this body, for example, that might not be as oppressive as it seems. Maybe claiming this body as mine and feeling like there's a Shelly here that's being oppressed by this aging body, maybe there's another way to be here with this body that is inevitably going to go through these struggles, that is inevitably going to get sick, that's inevitably going to age, that's aging in every moment, that may be clinging tightly to this way, to the way that it is, and failing to see that the body is changing in every moment, like maybe that's part of the struggle, maybe that's part of the difficulty. But in these moments where we can actually touch into, we can actually feel like in the meditation we did, like the movement or the flow of the body, we can start to see that it's not as we think it is. It's not quite that. It's not quite that the body is stagnant or that our lives are stationary or that, our, that this, there's a fixed shelly here that has to remain the same from this moment to the next. Right? How many of us are 
the same people that we were last year? Or do you remember when you were a teenager, you were 15 or 16 years old, and, you know, it's so important to sort of figure out who you are, right? Do you remember that time in your life? Yeah, I do. I still reflect back on that sometimes. And then to think about your ideas and opinions and interests now. Are you the same person that you were at 15? No, of course not. But we have this idea that this expression of a human being is the same as it was yesterday or last year or five years ago, or it is the same that it will be tomorrow or in the next breath, right? We forget that life is always in flow, that there's always movement and change happening in every in every moment. So we don't have to wait for 20 years of practice to actually taste the fruits of practice. We don't actually have to wait for some big moment or for us to arrive in a perfect state of wisdom to actually feel into these truths that, huh, life is always in flux, that experience is always changing, that it's hard to actually, it's hard to actually uh, feel into a a moment, really. I remember um, being on a retreat a couple years ago out at Prairie Farm, our retreat center, and sitting in my room, I was there for a few weeks, and I was there alone a lot of the time, and sitting in my room just looking out at, out the window at the, it was a windy day, and the grass was just moving, 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 moving. And I remember going like, huh, like it doesn't, there's just so much movement, it doesn't even seem like the mind can land on, like the mind was trying to go like, oh, it's like now, the grass is like this now. <laughs> And it just kept moving and moving and moving. There was so much movement. That was, it was a real insight into that there's, there's so many conditions that are influencing us in each moment. It's hard to actually feel the solidity. It feels like we're, we're a solid, there's a solid thing here that I call Shelly and that this is my life and I know what it is now. And it's probably going to be the same in five minutes or five years or whatever that is. But that's not actually true. There's so much happening to influence this moment, so many conditions, right? So many conditions to impact the way things are now. And in every moment, with every breath, just the air that's coming in and out of my body, things are always changing. It's just that I don't notice that. It's just that I don't see it. And so I cling to this sense of, oh, this is the way it is for me. Right? I think this is who I am. But it's only because I'm kind of misunderstanding. I'm misunderstanding the truth of this experience. On another time I was practicing out at the Forest Refuge, the retreat center, this um, connected to Insight Meditation Society. It's a place where you can practice fairly independently. There's a teacher that's there that you interact with. The teacher gives talks and gives instructions every day or every couple of days. And But mostly during the day, you're on your own practicing. And I've carved out time every summer for extended retreat, a few weeks or more. And I, I work in schools. Part of my, in addition to being here at Common Ground, part of my um, time is spent working as a social worker in schools. So I feel pretty bound to the school calendar a lot of the time. But in the summer, it's mine. And so I get to go on retreat. And I really, um, because I think part of it is that, you know, there's so much time that I don't feel like I have the permission to, to leave for four or five weeks. And in the summertime when I do, it really feels precious to me. So I was out there and I was just really enjoying being there, not every moment was easy, of course, but there was this kind of um, momentum of practice that was carrying me along, even in the difficult moments. 
and this faith in the Dharma that was established in the heart, ongoing, kind of like it is now. Um, And just having so much gratitude for being able to be there and really taking advantage of my time up till the very last minute. So I was practicing downside. I'd been there for a month, and I was uh, time for me to go home, the last day of retreat. And my van was coming, I knew, at a particular time, like 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock or something like that. And so I really had all the intention just to practice as long as I could because I knew it was going to end. So I'm downstairs and I'm doing walking practice by myself. And I look at my watch and it's time to go. And I go upstairs and grab my suitcase. And the van's already waiting for me. So I hop in the van and I am on the highway in like five minutes. So just like that, the retreat experience is over. And I remember being in the van with all the stimulation and people coming and going or people getting on the van and talking and just the kind of roughness that we have with each other when we're not being totally mindful, right? And feeling like, oh, God, just get me out of here. (laughs) Once I get to the airport, things will be better. (laughs) Travel down, get to the airport get off the van, go into the airport, and it's chaos, right? Fast-paced, people bumping into each other, not really being that mindful or kind to each other, and it's actually more intense than it was on the van because now I actually have to do things too, right? I have to get my ticket, I have to board the plane. So I found myself thinking like, oh, God, just get me to the gate where I can sit down for a few minutes, and then it will be better. So I get to the gate, and there's a flight that was delayed, and there's so many people, and again, it's the same scenario. There's not a lot of kindness. There's a lot of chaos, and it feels very unpleasant. And I'm still wanting to get away from it, and I caught the thought like, God, just get me on the plane, then I can <laughs> close my eyes and you know pretend like nobody else exists and go back to my pleasant retreat experience. And then I get on the plane, and I'm sitting next to a lovely couple who hadn't been on a vacation in, they told me, 20 years, right? So they're very excited to go back to Minnesota on their vacation, and they really wanted to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) To me, exactly. So I'm in, I'm on the plane, talking, and it dawned on me, you know, in, in a moment, it wasn't even something that I had to do, but it was just a force of practice. It was this, the conditions and the, the momentum and the faith that, oh, sweetie, you're resisting this moment. And you actually thought that things weren't changing, but they were changing all along, and you just missed it, right? It's like, and in that moment, when the heart really understood that, then there was no more wanting to be anywhere else. There was just a surrender to this, like, oh, these are the conditions now, and this is my life now. And it was such a beautiful way of understanding some depth of the practice, right? Because it wasn't that things were very pleasant. I had a headache, and... There was a lot of stimulation I wasn't used to, and I was kind of in and out of, like, you know, setting boundaries and taking care of myself and taking care of the person I was talking to and enjoying the conversation, not wanting the conversation. You know, so there was a lot to negotiate in the relational world, and it wasn't always pleasant, but there wasn't any resisting it. There was just an acceptance of this is the truth, And some understanding that if I make a problem out of this, if I make it into a Shelly that needs to control or needs to have something, a particular experience, or if I, you know, am a Shelly who can't see that things are changing all of the time, then it's really painful, right? It's really painful. And this is kind of what we do in our lives. We forget that things are in flux. We forget that every moment is 
is a coming together of lots of causes and conditions that create a this for us to relate to, we forget that and we cling to the way it used to be or the way we want it to be. So can you think about moments in your own life when you've not wanted things to be that they were and you've just resisted or fought it in some way and how painful that was? So part of this practice is learning how to wake up to those moments when we feel that tug and then see what we can do with it. Like, oh, what's needed here? I'm feeling this pain, this tightness, this clenching of the heart in this moment. I want it to be a way that it isn't. And because of that, because of that fight, now I'm suffering. And this doesn't mean that we, that we have to stop caring, right? This really feels like it's a path of love to me. It's like more inclusion, more inclusion, yes to everything. Even yes to the things that are hard, especially to the things that are hard. I was having a conversation with a friend not long ago, and the conversation was challenging. And there was... um, And I felt like a lot of energy, both in my heart and likely in their heart too, as we were talking about something quite difficult. And then at some moment, my friend started talking to me in a way that didn't feel so great and feel very kind. And so I felt this kind of energy of frustration arise in my heart, but there was enough interest to actually watch that, right? The practice was like, you know, this is... My life, my practice, my aim is to include all of my life in my practice, right? So this anger, maybe, or frustration, or something that was strong in the heart really moved. And I felt it, and there was enough energy. And then there was this, like, remembering that I really cared about this person. And so on the backside of that interest, that willingness to be with that energy, with that anger, there was enough love to kind of hold it. And then what emerged was was, um, something like, you can't talk to me that way. And then let's take a break, right? But that was just like a moment of being strong. I know my voice was stronger than it is now. It was something like, you can't talk to me that way, right? It's not okay to do that. This is not good for you and it's not good for me. But it wasn't a force of like, I hate you and I have to make you stop because I can't take it. This is not a part of my, this is not a part of what I want for my life. This is, this is not, this is me resisting, right? It wasn't that kind of resistance that sometimes anger can, that sometimes anger can need. Anger needs something to fight against, right? But it was a strength of love that met that strong force of energy, right? So even these moments of great difficulty in our lives where anger might arise in our heart, for example, if we have an attitude or an intention to include our whole life as part of what it, as, as part of the canvas for us to play in, right? This art of life, our, our life that is art, right? That we can used to awaken to really find freedom. If we can include all of it, every single moment, all of the emotions, all of the experiences, the mundane, the profound, the basic human relationships that we have, our work, our children, our engagement with the earth, our social activism, whatever that is, if we can include it all in the conditions, include all of those conditions as useful to our waking up, and we have so much opportunity, right? Like, I would have never, without practice, I would have never been able to 
I would have never been able to meet that anger with love. I would have never known that it was possible. Now, I might have known that it was possible to set boundaries, but it would have been a different intention. It would have been to shut something down because, it, because I was saying no to it. But this path of love is really one of complete inclusion. Yes, 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 what can I learn? What can I learn about human nature right now? What can I learn about the possibilities of transformation right now? The possibilities of transforming this reactive heart into one that can care and respond out of love. It's such a beautiful practice. It's one that seems to have no no barriers. Like what can I learn about the causes and conditions that support this this so that I don't have to cling or depend on being a self that has to have things the same all the time. A Shelly that has to have a body that is like this, whatever my view of my best body is, (laughs) whatever that is. A Shelly that has to have these preferences or know what her opinions are or know what her views are, and for those not to change, because then that's scary, because now it's a different Shelly. To kind of see, be in my life so that these moments emerge naturally, where I get to go like, oh yeah, look at this, everything changes. Everything changes. Wow, this is just a coming together of causes and conditions. It doesn't actually seem like I can locate a Shelly here in this moment. Even a Shelly who was angry, there was that force of energy that we might call anger, and then the force of love. It was hard to locate a Shelly in that. It was just a force of something. I didn't know Shelly knew how to do that. I really didn't. If you would have asked me, I would have said no. Like Shelly either gets angry or feels loving, but they don't really you know, go together. I wanted to leave plenty of time for us to have a conversation tonight. Mm. Before we do that, I want to read a little bit of something. This is a great book, if any of you have read it. It's called A Time to Stand Up. An Engaged Buddhist Manifesto for Our Earth. It's written by Tanisara. She's a wonderful teacher. She was a nun for many years and now lives as a householder just like we do. And really has a beautiful way of understanding her life in the Dharma as included in all of our social structures and forces. Um, just as I was you know, mentioning, there's that force of anger that can arise as one of the things that sometimes we don't want to include in our practice. And often in you know, Buddhist communities, it's been my experience that there's a high value on harmony and calm and patience and qualities of the heart like that. And that's good and useful because we get to practice being our best best selves in community. But our practice includes everything, and so we have to learn how to work with even the things that are difficult, like anger. And so this is, a, I thought, a beautiful description of her understanding of working with something like anger. She says, an aspect of the wise, unchained feminine is transmuted anger into fierce truth-telling and protective compassion. Rather than shaping herself into a pretzel in service of distorted and immature power, which leaves her mind 
which leaves her muted, manipulative, frustrated, damaged, and damaging. Women can recognize the primordial root of luminous, fierce compassion through the liquid fire expressed in their bodies, demonized by the word anger. Does that like feel so powerful? Just like, for me, it just points to that what it, you know, all of that, that truth-telling, all of, all of what she's referring to is really a result of her being willing to look at, touch, and experience anger and not demonize it. This energy distilled into clarity and wisdom, you know, that force, that, that force of energy that we recognize as anger, it really is just energy. Have you, you've probably noticed when you've gotten anger, angry that like it feels intense. And if you can feel it in the body, it like has a, a big feeling to it. This energy distilled into clarity and wisdom burns away the dross of our self-seeking desires and fears. It cuts through a primary split we carry into our life as Dharma practitioners which is our subtle addiction to transcendence and calm states, based not in maturity, but on our but on our original traumas that are due to separation, vulnerability, and fear. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to unpack in that little paragraph, but if we can really just use it as an invitation to get close to the experiences in our lives that feel off limits because we want to learn from them, right? We don't have to become them, but we just want to learn because we, what we want, I think what we all want, is some, something more trustworthy to take refuge in than the things that we have than the relationships or the homes or the cars or the jobs or the bodies that we have. We want something that's more trustworthy. And in order to touch that which is trustworthy, the Dhamma, the deepest truths, right? Like those I've been pointing to, impermanence and experience of nature or not self, then we have to be willing to get close to all of our experiences to see what we can learn from them to see if what the Buddha says is actually true, right? to see if it shakes out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and again and again. An aspect of the wise, unchained feminine is transmuted anger into fierce truth-telling and protective compassion. Rather than shaping herself into a pretzel in service of distorted and immature power, which leaves her muted, manipulative, frustrated, damaged, and damaging, women can recognize the primordial root of luminous, fierce compassion through the liquid fire experienced in their bodies, demonized by the word anger. This energy distilled into clarity and wisdom burns away the dross of our self-seeking desires and fears. It cuts through a primary split we carry into our life as Dharma practitioners, which is our subtle addiction to transcendence and calm states, based not in maturity, but on our original traumas that are to do with separation, vulnerability, and fear. And we can all share this experience and i believe that in a, in that in my own way in that simple moment i was talking about with my friend who we were having an argument right and that willingness to feel anger and feel the love beneath it is i think what tenisero is pointing to in this how anger or strong energetic states like that might be transformed into fierce truth-telling moments of, you know, fierce truth-telling or uh, really strong compassion. 
So we don't have to be afraid of anger, we just have to get close to it and understand its possibility. Like understand the possibility when we're able to say yes. Because our lives, like there's so much possibility. There's so much possibility. What interested me about listening to her description of her experience of anger, something about the root of luminous something, something. <laughs> I don't remember the, the exact. liquid fire? Yeah, but it, it's like, if you're willing to become intimate with this energy of anger, it's not like you're transforming it. It's like you're seeing what it already is, which is empty of self and is just energy moving. And so, yeah, it seems like the movement isn't like, I need to transform this anger into some other truth, but it's more like, I need to get out of the way of this anger because it is, it is already empty of self. It is already compassionate. It is already true. You know what I mean? I don't know. There's just something about the way that she articulates that that feels empty of self. Yeah. Yeah. She articulates it really well. (laughs) Yeah. You want to hear it again? (laughs) Luminous, fierce compassion. Yeah. Yeah, it's such an important... I, I have the same understanding. Yeah, that that the expression or the experience itself is empty of, you know, the experience is empty of self. The energy that we call anger, you know, is just energy moving that might be useful. But we get confused by that energy, and then we want to claim it as, and be self-right, right? That self-righteousness. Like, I am angry, and now I have to do something about this anger. That's different than watching it, this energy that's, like Jana was saying, empty of self, emerge and yield some benefit, potentially, actually. Trusting that the anger has wisdom in it. Mm. Yeah. Other comments, questions, objections? Hi, my name is Kevin. So um, I really liked what you said about uh, the changing self, if you will, or that it's not solid. And um, we're always changing and moving. But uh, what I find is uh, challenging is uh, relationship stuff where you are seen by the other person in a certain way. You know, so I see this in friendships and family situations. And uh, so the the other has a perception of you that to me feels like it locks you in to some extent. Um, and it's, uh, I feel a little imprisoned by that somehow. And I think my uh go to strategy has been to avoid sometimes you know to to not participate in certain relationships because i feel that pull of how uh i'm perceived uh in a way of how i used to be and it, it's uncomfortable and i don't know how to um you know, bridge that gap without uh, hurting those people. And so I find that I avoid it more. So uh, if anyone has any thoughts on working with that, I'd be interested to hear. Yeah, I just appreciate that comment so much. It just kind of reminds me that we're always... Uh, embracing kind of two 
levels of existence, right? This ultimate or level of existence. Maybe that, uh, like these deeper truths might resonate in that ultimate level. And then there's this relative level, right? That we're all interacting with each other on. So on the relative level, there might be, you know, strategies that we use to take care of ourselves, like setting boundaries or distance, like finding some distance where we can still be kind or, you know, maybe the stay in relationship but not an everyday kind of thing or whatever it is. Or maybe disengaging from the relationship altogether if that feels like the best thing to do. And then in this other way, like trying to understand some of these deeper truths, like what's happening in this moment when, um, you know, getting interested in what what's happening in this heart when it's it is this the, my perception that somebody else has a different perception of me than I have of myself, right? That's a very interesting moment. There's a lot going on. There's this internal perception that could be known. There's maybe a defense of it. Like, oh, I'm not this person anymore, I'm this person. Like another moment of becoming a person. And then there's knowing of somebody else's perception, right? So if we can learn to kind of get interested in what's happening in those, like that's the, it's our ticket to freedom if we can get interested, right? And still understand that we have to do this human relational thing of being in relationship and setting boundaries and taking care of ourselves. So we might have to do something practical, or strategic, like you're not now, or I'm not going to be around you or in this relationship, or that close, or whatever. But also to remember to continue to be interested in what, in the direct experience of these deeper truths in a single moment in our lives in an everyday way, right? Because there's so much to learn there. My name is Noreen, and that just reminded me of an experience I had recently with an old friend of mine who I hadn't seen in several years and hadn't had much contact with, and it seemed like we were having kind of this superficial small talk going on for quite a while. And she said something to me, and I reacted kind of from an angry point of view, kind of putting up my boundaries. Um, like, you know, saying that, that that felt really critical to me. And um, but then I didn't go any further. I didn't say anything else. And I just kind of let it be. And I recognized later on that I my anger or discomfort or whatever was not about that other person. It was about just what you were talking about, her perception. Some are what my perceptions of what her perceptions of me are. You know, it kind of goes back and forth. And I realized I was more angry at myself for not being authentic. And that was really freeing because it was kind of like, oh, wow, this meditation's really working. You know, I mean, I had a real deep insight into, like, my reaction to the non-self or whatever you want to call it. You know, it was... Not that complicated, it was very simple, but I really got what was going on. And it completely changed the tone. And I also felt like her perception of, you know, like those old relationships was like, it's made it a little more possible for her to shift her thinking about who I am. Um, But I don't know, you know, I don't know that, but it made the relationship from that point on much more authentic and from the heart. Yeah. And it was a really good experience. But not that easy. Not totally that easy. Not that easy. That's the complicated human nature part. <laughs> the simple instructions, but the complicated part of it. But what I I appreciate right at the end you were saying that, you know, you hoped it made a difference, but you don't really know, right? But it left it what you do know is that it left a good feeling in your heart. Like, oh, this is an authentic expression. This feels, and that left a good feeling in your heart, right? And so what is that good, what is that good feeling? Like getting interested in that good feeling, what is that about? What is that about? Is that another 
moment to, maybe I won't go on, but just getting interested in those moments that it feels like there's something happening in the heart that maybe we, we're not that familiar with. Like, oh, there was this new way of responding that even surprised me. And what's that? Because that, that birth of something new, or uh, maybe not a birth of something new, but our ability to get to know new experiences is really important. right? We don't want to be the same. Um, there are these moments in practice when it seems like nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden something new emerges, and it's like, oh, that, like that, I didn't even know that. It's like brand new. I'd never seen that, right? I remember sitting in a retreat a long, long time ago and um, feeling really strange. I didn't, like, what is, couldn't quite tell. The body felt weird. The mind felt weird. And then I go to my teacher and I'm describing it. And he's like, yeah, that's tranquility. And I was like, oh, I didn't even, didn't even know what calm was, right? But getting really into Interested in those moments where, like, something new is happening in the heart. And like, oh, what is this? Without having to name it or define it or become a self that, you know, like, oh, this is a part of who I am now. Without having to say that. Just to get interested. It's that kind of childlike way of getting interested in experience. You know, the way children, like, learn how to do things, everything, move their bodies, talk, try on new ways of engaging people. It's like just all practice. Like, that's the beauty of having a beginner's mind in our lives and in our practice. Like, oh, this is emerging in the heart. What is this? Look at that. Look at what it wants to do. Look at the residue. Look at the aftermath. (coughs) What's that like? And then in those moments, we can see this, too, as a force of nature. But if we try to, like, go, oh, yeah, I know what this is. It's got to be this, right? This is what the mind does anyways. It wants to layer a story on top of it. It's like, oh, it must be this. It must be because of this. Like, everything needs to make sense. But sometimes it doesn't, like, if we know, like, oh, that's what the mind does, but it doesn't make sense, and can that be okay that it doesn't make sense? It's just this. And this is how it feels. This is its texture. This is what it led to. This is what came before it. Then we're really in the zone of learning, like being invested in our life for the sake of learning something. And hopefully learning something about some of those deeper truths that I was pointing us to. I think that's all we have time for. Thanks for your kind attention, listening. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.